Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, invites you to Be the Informed Patient with the podcast that features experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Once a man learns he has prostate cancer, before he and his doctor can decide on treatment, they'll need information about the growth or spread of the cancer. That's where laboratory pathologists come in. Today, I'm talking with pathologist Gustavo De La Rosa, a professor and vice chair of pathology at Upstate and also the director of anatomic pathology. Welcome to The Informed Patient, Dr. De La Rosa. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. The American Cancer Society recommends screening for prostate cancer using the prostate-specific antigen, or PSA, starting in a man's 40s or 50s, depending on his individual risk. This is a blood test, but can you explain to us what the test is looking for? Prostate-specific antigen, it's normal in the body. So it's an enzyme, uh, it's in the prostate, but it gets released into the bloodstream as well. So when there's pathology in the prostate gland, this antigen could be increased in the serum, and that's what we measured. So what does the number mean then? Because a man would get a number back from the lab, right? It depends a little bit on the patient's age, but in general, I would say for practical purposes, any level greater than four is considered abnormal. So it's four is nanograms per milliliter, but basically four. If you say that, people would understand. Is it normal for the number to fluctuate up and down from one PSA test to another? Yes. And also, it's important to mention that the PSA is not specific of cancer. So it's elevated in a lot of processes that happen in the prostate. The most common one is what people know as BPH, or benign prostatic hyperplasia. It's almost, if you will, a physiological change because all men get it and enlarges the prostate and so forth. And so that increases also in the level of serum PSA, and so does prostatitis, so infections or inflammation of the prostate. So just because you have a high number higher than four doesn't at all mean that it's... Exactly. No, no. In fact, it's been questioned a little bit. It's used as a screening test. And the reason why is because it was used so much and patients were biopsied and diagnosed with cancer that probably doesn't need to be treated, it resulted in a lot of overdiagnosis and overtreatment. But that's kind of another subject. Advanced prostatic cancer is uncommon, uncommonly diagnosed. So in other words, if we didn't have prostatic specific antigen, we would be missing a lot of early cancers and we would only detect those that are already advanced. Well, let's talk more about a biopsy, and that's where you would get a tissue sample from the prostate. Is that the only way to get a definitive diagnosis of prostate cancer? Yes. Yes, it is. Clinically, it's required for any treatment. The truth is, if you have a widespread metastatic disease in the bones and the PSA is super high, the likelihood that that is cancer is very, very high. Regardless of that, confirmation by a tissue sample is needed. In the lab, what are you looking for in those tissue samples? What we're looking for is a proliferation of abnormal glands. So there are glands of the prostate that resemble the normal glands, but they're different under the microscope. What do cancer cells look like? In prostate cancer, basically, the cells are larger 
and they grow in a disordered way, so in a kind of haphazard pattern. So that, and they're also very cytological features, meaning precise features of the gland, the cells itself, all the cells of the nucleus and the cytopan. So the features of that nature that would make us diagnose cancer. And they're different from the normal glands. And there are also ways of doing some markers that we can use immunocytochemistry, which is a form of tumor markers that will be present in benign tissue and not in cancer. Are you able to tell, based on the biopsy sample, how advanced the cancer is, or can you tell whether it has likely spread? Not really. There is a component of that, but it's very uncommon, that if you see in a biopsy that there's a little bit of adipose tissue of fat and there's tumor in it, we know it's spread out, but that's very uncommon. So in general, no. Which you can use the biopsy in general. It's a way of predicting uh, which cancers could be already outside of the prostate. Meaning if you have a very high-grade tumor, the likelihood of the cancer are being already out of the prostate is much higher. How common are false negative results in biopsies where a patient learns that they do not have cancer, but actually it turns out that they do? Does that ever happen? Yeah, there is roughly about probably 2 to 2.5% with today's protocols. That was a, not a, an uncommon event um, a couple of decades ago, or even a decade ago, maybe, where the biopsy sample was more restricted and the number of biopsies were slow, more. And so we really missed a lot of cancers. But today, that's a lot lower possibility. What are the possible reasons for a false negative at this point in time? In general, the concept is the more biopsies lead to a higher detection rate. So it's a thing, it's a matter of sampling. Did we get it all? Do we have all the area sample? So just to give you an example and put this in perspective, decades ago, the typical protocol for radiologists to perform a biopsy was doing six biopsies. So we call it sectant biopsy. It was a classic for decades and decades. And so usually we divided the prostate in the apex, the mid prostate and the base of the prostate. And they would do one biopsy from each side, right and left. Today, the protocols at least include what we call extended protocols, 12 biopsies, which include the periphery of the prostate that was not included in the previous ones. And the cancers tend to be in the periphery of the gland. So there's a higher likelihood that they will be detected. In addition to that, in some places, they do something that's called saturation biopsies. Many of them, actually much more than like 20 or 30, but that's not used very often. What people maybe start seeing now, it's done in upstate, but not in every medical center, is image-guided biopsies, also known as fusion biopsies. And they're called fusion because it's a way of targeting a lesion rather than just sampling blindly a lesion. And that's fusion because it's the fusion between ultrasound and MRI testing. So they do an MRI and ultrasound and detect the more likely areas of, uh, of a lesion, and that is sample. And that yields a much higher detection of prostate cancer. It is also worth mentioning that in the past, there were some patients that because of their age, maybe their life expectancy is not that low or the cancer involvement is very minimal, they will be put in, basically decided not to treat, and they call it watchful waiting. That was probably about 10 years ago, started changing that in something is called 
active surveillance. It means the same a little bit, but it's not just waiting for something to happen. You are actually more active in watching the PSA and then decided to biopsy again. And that is critical. For instance, at Upstate and in many medical centers around the country, people are not put in active surveillance until these type of biopsies are done. So if they're done this way, the likelihood of missing cancer is much lower, so they feel confident. Whereas if somebody comes with a classic 12 biopsies and negative and the PSA is really high, it makes you wonder whether there's cancer that could have been missed. And so it's safer to put them in active surveillance this way. You're listening to Upstate's The Informed Patient Podcast. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Gustavo De La Rosa. He's a professor and vice chair of pathology at Upstate and the director of anatomic pathology. And today we're focused on prostate cancer. What can you tell us about how prostate cancers are graded using the Gleason scale? It seems kind of complicated, but it, relatively speaking, it's relatively simple. So Gleason grading is a form of histologic grading, meaning the least aggressive to more aggressive types, depending on a score. And the truth is Gleason grading is actually called in a reality score. So it's a combination. Uh, what we're looking at is basically whether the glands are well-formed glands, they're uh, glands that are not so well-formed and they're coalescing together or they're infiltrated in a single file, different things that we use. And the division grade actually has a very good reputation because it's one of the best probably grading systems that exists. I would say the most reliable. It was created in the 1960s by Dr. Gleason. He was in Minnesota and the VA in Minnesota. So the grading has been changed a lot. There have been a lot of updates. So what is used in the Gleason grading for people to understand is that we divide it in five different uh, histologic patterns. And so in the Gleason grading, we use the most predominant pattern followed by the second most predominant pattern. So that means if you have a Gleason score of six, and usually patients will see it says Gleason score six in parentheses, three plus three, or sometimes it says Gleason three plus three equals six, which seems kind of silly because it's basic math, but that's the idea. So if you have a Gleason seven, you could have a Gleason seven, three plus four, or a Gleason seven, four plus three, meaning that the four is more predominant, which is actually a more aggressive form. That's how we create it. So the lowest, the Gleason, the better, and the higher is obviously more aggressive. But there's been some very important changes since that, and I think it has helped researchers, clinicians, and also patients, probably. It will be easier to understand. So the problem with the Gleason system is, that, like I mentioned, we have five different patterns. The truth is that the pattern, for instance, was called pattern one and pattern two, they're almost non-existent in real practice. This was the 1960s, the new methods. So we know that those probably are not really cancer. So the reality is that the minimum Gleason pattern that we can see is three. So if you have a tumor that is all three, that means it's gonna be six, three plus three. So if one person looks at that, a patient looks at that and know that the, scores, the, the Gleason score or Gleason grading goes from one to 10, if you're in six, well, you have a pretty significant cancer, right? You're not one, you're not two, and you're six. And the reality is that Gleason score six is the lowest possible Gleason grading. So research studies actually looked at 
what is called chemical recurrence. So basically after the prostate is taken out, the PSA starts to rise. So that's called a chemical recurrence because the PSA should be normal by then when they took the prostate out with all the tumor. So based on that, it has been divided in five different groups and combinations of Gleason grades. So that's what patients will start to see. And maybe possibly Gleason per se with that name, maybe actually uh, not used anymore. What we call this is great grouping, and it's five different groups of combinations. So the group one, for instance, is a Gleason six, three plus three, and a Gleason five, it's a Gleason nine or 10. So it's a combination of pattern four and five, five and four, or just five and five. So those are the highest Gleason gradient. So this is a more accurate because it really reflects more exactly what's happening and the likelihood of that tumor to spread or to be more aggressive and better understood. So today you will see a biopsy, for instance, I will diagnose Gleason adenocarcinoma and say Gleason 6, and then we'll say how much of the biopsy was involved by cancer, and then that's followed by a gray group, and I say gray group 1 of 5. If you have a very high Gleason uh, grade, so for instance, you have a Gleason grade of eight, you would take Gleason score eight, in parentheses, we'll put four plus four or three plus five, and in parentheses then, we will say grade group four of five. So that's easier to understand it that way. And also this separation is not totally arbitrary, it's based on risk of having uh, recurrence or cancer coming back after surgery. I understand the grading system has evolved since the 1960s. Does it still rely mostly on the pathologist's impression of what the sample looks like under the microscope? Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you mentioned that. Because actually, urologists uh, trust the, the Gleason grading a lot. And, and it is a very good system, but there is some sensitivity to it. And there's some inter-observer uh, variability. So it's not perfect, but it's pretty good. So the way we grade things have not changed as much is how we report it. And today, cancer protocols, and they talk about grade groups rather than Gleason grade, which is a lot easier because it's a combination of different gradings and possibilities. But if I understand correctly, the grading only tells part of the story because you also do something called staging. Can you explain what that is? Right. So staging is different. It's a way of judging how much the tumor has spread or how much of the prostate is involved by cancer. Has it gone outside of the prostate? Has it gone to the lymph node? Has it gone to other organs, to the bone and so forth? So there's two ways of TNM staging, two different types. One is the clinical, which is what the clinicians do in base of imaging analysis and x-rays and MRIs and CT scans and so forth. And then there's the pathologic staging. So the pathologic staging can only happen after the prostate has been taken out. So we see how much of the prostate has been involved. Mostly, just to put it simply, a very low tumor is usually, let's say, T2, basically uh, means that it's confined to the prostate. Three and four, meaning that it went outside of the prostate into the surrounding tissues, the fat, or it could go into the rectum and things of that nature. The, the staging that you're referring to is how do we determine the most accurate and the one all centers all around the world is used is called TNM. So T for tumor, N for nodes, and M for metastases. 
So the tumor will be what I just mentioned. Is it confined to the prostate? Is it outside of the prostate? How far did it go? And then are the lymph nodes involved? How many of them are involved? Are they involved or not? And then are there any metastases outside of the lymph nodes or the prostate? So distant metastases or distant spread. Under the T designation, does the actual physical size of the tumor matter? Not in prostate. In many tumors, it does. But in prostate, it's actually like what I mentioned to you. T1 is reserved only for those diagnosed under needle biopsy. And the pathologic grading, T2 is the lowest possible one. And that means it's confined to the prostate. T3 is when the tumor has spread either to the fat around it, so outside of the prostate, or into the seminal vesicles, that is uh, another component of the prostate. And then um, at four, it's like I mentioned, it goes into other organs, such as, for instance, the rectum, which is very advanced then. So TNM staging is not a prediction. It's actually what is going on currently. Exactly, exactly. So is the involvement of cancer in the body, how far has the spreading occurred or has it occurred at all? So the urologist takes this information, the grade and the stage, and that's how they recommend treatment, right? Absolutely, yeah. So it's a risk assessment that I'm not going to get into. It's quite complicated, but it actually takes into account, so a very low risk, low risk, intermediate risk, high risk, and very high risk. And it's a combination of staging, grading, and level of PSA in the serum. So a combination of those puts a patient in a category which is easy to decide how to treat or what to offer the patient in terms of treatment. When is molecular testing of the tumor recommended? It's very early on that now we have several ways of trying different tests to try to predict aggressiveness of the tumor that go beyond the gleason grading. But the truth is, this has not been adopted or has not been really tried well enough to have a universal use of them. So the truth is, there are many commercially available molecular testing that the companies have developed, and there's been some studies, and that's what they're trying to predict. So for instance, a patient with a Gleason 6, for the most part, will be told that probably doesn't need to be treated. The question is, at some times, Obviously, because we are sampling, we can get a six, but the truth is maybe somewhere in the gland, we can't sample it all, there might be a higher pattern or higher grade. So these molecular tests that target different genes and the combination of genes and difference in, in each one may be able to predict which patients with that kind of grading will be progressing. But in a nutshell, there are many of them and none of them have universal use recommended for now. They haven't been any significant randomized trials for it. So it would be very patient-specific if the doctor felt like it would be useful or not. Right. And it, it doesn't hurt to get some of those tests, but the truth is, actually, we upstate mostly, we're not using them. What are the most common places where prostate cancer may spread? You mentioned the rectum. Is that just because it's proximity? Right, right. So the staging, we're talking about local spread or involvement, and then distance spread. So one is, like you mentioned, going into the rectum, which is pretty close to it. So it goes into that. That's direct extension. And that's what we call a T4 tumor. But if the tumor goes to the lymph node, meaning that it has left the prostate already, it's not just in the confine of the prostate, it goes to the lymph node. And then after that, it will be going to 
different, more distant sites, the most relevant and most typical is the bone, bone lesions. And the lung also could be other organs. It just becomes really serious level of metastasis when it goes to the visceral organs like the lung and so forth. But the most common is the bone. Once the tumor has spread to the bones, basically we're dealing with a disease that is not curable at that point. Doesn't mean that it's lethal. It could be treated, but it's not curable. When you find cancer in the prostate, is there ever a concern that it's a cancer that's spread to the prostate from somewhere else in the body? Does it ever happen that way? Yeah, but it is very, very uncommon. So yes, we can have certain types of tumors that could actually go to the prostate, like lung cancer and so forth, but it's very uncommon. Aside from the biopsy, are there other tests that might be ordered which would end up in the pathologist's lab? Not really, no. Other than PSA and the prostate biopsies and then surgical specimens after prostatectomy has been performed, we talk about molecular testing, but we don't have any accepted form of molecular testing at this time. Do you have any idea how common it is for men to live with prostate cancer, even for years? I mean, we talked about active surveillance. Does that happen? Are there a lot of men that are actively... Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. Some of the great developments that happen have been based on this. So I cannot be precise in terms of timing. It, it could have been probably about two decades or maybe 15 years ago. There have been studies done originally in Europe. The Swedish were the most reliable studies, but then they were done elsewhere in Europe and in the United States. People realized that the prostatectomy were over-treating patients because no one was progressing into any disease and the disease had spread already, it was the same whether they had a prostatectomy or not. So there wasn't a lot of value. So the truth is we're probably over-treating cancer for the same reasons that I explained at the beginning. You, know, you have a Gleason 6, so it's an intermediate grade, it's cancer. Today we know that Gleason's grade 6, for instance, has very low potential for spread. So patients, yes, they can live with cancer and not be operated and followed by it. There is a saying that some people die with cancer and others die off cancer. Still, prostate cancer is the most frequently diagnosed tumor in men and the second cause of mortality. So it is important, but there are more cases diagnosed. So for instance, if you consider prostate, the estimated new cases may be 20% of all the cancers, whereas lung could be 14%, which is less. But when you're talking about death, lung causes almost 25 to 30% of mortality, and prostate being more common only causes 9%, so it's less lethal. Can you tell me about the use of artificial intelligence in pathology? Yes, this is a very modern thing and it's based on computer imaging of the same images that we looked at under the microscope, but it scanned perfectly all around the sample. These computers are basically taught how to detect things, right? And so it's a very complex process, but the idea can be applied to the prostate very easily. And in fact, it already exists. I've been approved for FDA approval for using the prostate. To make it easy and simple, diagnosing cancer in prostate is not that complicated. We talked about grading, which could be variable. So the artificial intelligence targeting of all these biopsies that we mentioned, at times, all are negative. Sometimes one or two are positive. So that means that we're looking at 15 biopsies with no tumor in them. 
And so it's very easy to teach a computer how to detect that. So we will concentrate on the ones that we need to concentrate. It doesn't mean that a pathologist doesn't look at it. It's just he's selecting the areas of concern. And the computer are actually much better than humans for this because they don't get distracted. They don't get biased or interrupted by a telephone call and so forth. The second thing is the histologic gradient that we were discussing. A lot of these, I didn't want to overwhelm people with details, but it's percentage of a pattern and the other pattern and how we make decisions. So if you teach a computer how to do this based on information, and these computers have a network that actually allows it to learn a system, the grading will probably be more objective and possibly more accurate. But then again, it won't be a computer diagnosing and grading your cancer. It will be a pathologist doing it with the help of the computer. Well, Dr. De La Rosa, thank you so much for helping us understand more about prostate cancer. Oh, you're very welcome. My pleasure. My guest has been pathologist Dr. Gustavo De La Rosa, Upstate's Vice Chair of Pathology and Director of Anatomic Pathology. The Informed Patient is a podcast covering health, science, and medicine, brought to you by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, and produced by Jim Howe. Find our archive of previous episodes at upstate.edu informed. This is your host, Amber Smith, thanking you for listening. <laughs>